A number of summers ago, I was visiting my wife's family in Seattle, and one afternoon the sun actually peeked out. <laughs> if you've ever been to Seattle, that's very unusual. In fact, what did the Seattleites say to the Pillsbury Doughboy? Love your tan. Uh, <laughs> on this beautiful afternoon with the sun out in Seattle, I thought, boy, this is great. And so I jumped on a road bike and I went for a bike ride around Lake Washington. And as I was riding along, I was staying far to the right in my lane, so I didn't think much when I heard a car approaching from behind. But as I was riding along, all of a sudden I felt the whoosh of the bumper of that car coming about that far from my leg. And then a moment later, I felt a sharp pain in the small of my back and my bicycle shot off into some bushes. As the car passed, I heard laughter. And then in the bushes, I looked up, I could see there were two people in the car. And uh, one of them was the driver who had almost hit me. And the other one was a passenger who had literally leaned out, taken his fist and slugged me in my back as they went by. And as I watched them, I saw a hand come up over the top of the car and make an obscene gesture. Well, more than the fear I have looking back of what they almost did to me was the fear of what I wanted to do to them. Anything I had in my hand at that moment, I would have used to stop them. A rock, a baseball bat, uh, a stick. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but I'm glad I didn't have a gun. So what did I do? I jumped back on my bike, I rode home, got in a car, and went out looking for them. And I found them. And I called the police, and there were handcuffs, and they were busted. I got to tell you, there is no high in the world that is higher than that rush of anger, especially righteous anger. Someone has said anger is this, like the salt on the rim of the margarita glass. You take a taste, and you got to have more, and more, and more. And that's the problem with anger. Anger can take you over. It can consume you. Have you ever lost your temper and then afterwards someone says, boy, I never saw that side of you? Or even worse, daddy, I was so scared, I didn't know who you were. There's nothing that leaves more human damage in its wake than anger, especially in families. And this morning we're going to meet the first human family. Cain lost his temper. And you and I are the children of Cain. Abel, his brother, died, didn't have any descendants. Today, you and I walk around with the DNA of Cain inside of us. And so let's meet our early ancestor, Cain and his brother Abel, in Genesis chapter 4. We read, Eve became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. 
It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Here ends the reading. A while back, somebody did a study of who's who in America to find out what kind of background would predispose a person to winding up into who's who. You may be surprised what they found. They found that the biggest background would be to be the eldest child of a minister. The eldest child of a minister. My comment was that if they did a study of the FBI's 10 most wanted list, they'd probably come up with the same result. (laughs) PKs can go either this way or that way. Cain was the eldest. And he was also the only for a while. I mean, think about being the only child on earth. I mean, getting born as the first baby on earth was not a bad gig for Cain. I mean, imagine having your picture taken 24 hours a day. The word sharing had not yet been invented. Life was good for Cain. But then one day, along came a sibling. And Cain said, whoa, wait a minute, what's that? Where did he come from? But by now, Cain had established his hierarchy. Uh, When Cain was born, if you listened a moment ago, his mother Eve said, I have brought forth a man. And the word able means frailty or nothingness. And that's exactly how Cain felt. It was the man and it was the nothing. This rift between the first two brothers carried over into their careers. Verse 2, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Economics today still divides humankind. You have Bernie Sanders and you have Ted Cruz. You have uh, protectionists and you have free traders. But nowhere do you see the rift between the first two brothers more than the fact that they don't even worship together. Abel makes his offering out amongst his flock. Cain makes his offering from out in his field. Now here's the problem. It says in verse 4, The Lord looked with favor on Abel in his offering, but on Cain in his offering he did not look with favor. Here is one of the great mysteries of the Bible right here. Why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's offering? And there are so many theories it will make your head spin. Some say, well, it's because the Israelites were wandering herdsmen like uh, Abel was, and the Canaanites, who were their enemies, were the were farmers. And other people say, no, no, no. It's because Abel made an offering of the, of the fatty portions, it says. In other words, the finest cuts of meat, and all Cain brought were some vegetables. And sure enough, you go down to publish, you're going to find that the lamb chops are more expensive than the broccoli. 
In other words, people try to make it that somehow Cain messed up his offering. But you don't see that in the text. In fact, if you were listening, it's just the opposite. Cain is the one who takes the lead. As the eldest, he steps forward and he makes the first ever offering on earth to God. No, 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 no. Here is the question. How will I handle the sovereignty of God? If in life things don't go the way I want and I find myself holding on to the short end of the stick of life, what will I do? How will I respond? See, Cain is just your regular guy out there on his farm, driving his pickup truck and listening to Garth Brooks on the radio. I mean, he's, he's religious, may not be as crazy into God as his brother Abel is, but, but Cain goes to church, and yeah, one day he even steps up and he makes a real nice offering to the Creator. And then just after that, his brother Abel does the same thing. Now what happens next? I think some of us have this vision now that what happens next is the heavens part and now suddenly there's this great big thundering voice that comes down and says, Yo, Abel, you're the man Abel. You're my man Abel. And then another voice, the same voice says, And you, Cain, you're a jerk. You're a nothing. Out of my sight, Cain. But if you look at the story, there is no verbal interchange This is this part of the story. You don't see any quotation marks. In other words, it just simply says that God accepted Abel's offering and didn't accept Cain's offering. You know what probably happened is just that Cain's life did not go all that well. And in life, his brother Abel starts hitting it out of the park. Abel's flocks start multiplying and Abel's family is filled with love and joy and grace. And Abel is sort of winning the Powerball lottery of life. And Cain's life just kind of sucks. And most of all, that hierarchy that Cain had had in his head now crumbles and so Cain instead of being up here on top he's down here at the bottom and Abel instead of being down here at the bottom is now up here at the top and Cain is furious he wants to hit something verse 5 it says so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast that ever happened to you you ever had the cosmic rug jerked out from under you I mean, one moment you're the toast of the town and God's in his heaven, the blue sky up above and it's, everything's great and all of a sudden, bam, down you go and you look up and suddenly someone who used to report to you is now in charge of running your world. And you were, verse 5, you were very angry and your face was downcast. Back in 1984, the Best Picture Award went to a movie called Amadeus. And if you never saw the movie, you may think that the movie Amadeus is really about the, um, the great composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. But if you saw the movie, it's really about Mozart's chief rival, a man named Antonio Salieri. And it's a story about how Salieri, like Cain, goes from up here to down here. The movie starts with Salieri as the most famous composer in Europe, when all of a sudden, here along comes this upstart young Mozart who starts making the most beautiful music the human ear has ever heard. And that's bad enough for Salieri, but not only that, but Mozart is an obscene, self-centered little brat who uses his brilliant mind, among other crudities, to talk dirty backwards. Whereas Salieri was this holy man who has taken a vow of celibacy in order to devote his entire life to making music to the glory of God. Even with that, though, Salieri is only good enough to realize how bad he is next to Mozart. 
And Salieri is driven to madness in his envy that God had put that gift inside that little punk, Mozart. And in the end of the movie, Salieri ends up dying in an insane asylum, having gone insane with envy. Well, in my family, um, it wasn't Cain and Abel, it was Vic and Dave. And when I, with my brother and I, I was the Cain figure. I was, I was the man. In fact, when I was a kid, I was kind of this weird physical um, uh, freak in that I grew so fast. I grew to my present size, height and weight, by the end of the seventh grade. <laughs> I had no idea I was going to stop. I mean, I thought I was going to be Shaquille O'Neal. And then I just stopped right there. But I was known as Big Pence. And my, little, my, set, my 16-month younger brother, Dave, was known as Little Pence. And I was very comfortable with that, as you might imagine. Uh, it was really kind of great. But then uh, as high school went on, he came roaring past me. But, so that by the time I was a senior, I was on my way to becoming Little Pence, and he was on his way to becoming a 245-pound, 6'2", what one day would be an all-American middle linebacker, small college. And, and so I was now Little Pence. He was Big Pence. And give you a picture of uh, what that meant for me, my one little brush with athletic immortality was when I was in high school, I set the record for the most pins on the wrestling team. And they had a big board in the gym, and on the wall in the gym, they had V Pence. Next year, my brother came by, and he broke my record, and they just erased the V, and they put a D, Dave Pence, up there. Uh, uh, and then football, in college, we played uh, against, we were rival, high school, rival, rival colleges where uh, we would play each other, and the newspapers would do this thing, Pence against Pence, the two brothers, only I struggled to get playing time, and he was the star of the team. Give you an idea what that translated into. Um, my 10th anniversary of reunion from graduation from college, I went back to the reunion. And if you're an athlete, one of the questions in your mind always is, did I make a big enough splash so the coach will remember me when I come back for the reunion? And it was my 10th reunion, and I remember walking into the athletic department at my college, Pomona College in Claremont, California, and I saw Coach Ambord back there in his office, my football coach. And I got his eye, and he looked at me, and he grinned, and he jumped to his feet, and he came around his desk, and he stuck out his hand, and he said, Dave Pence, it's so good to see you. I now know why Cain killed his brother. <laughs> Do you have an Abel in your life? I mean, you got somebody in your life who does it all so well and, and, and makes it all so, look so easy. And you know that if you did it, you worked the hardest you could for the rest of your life, you know, still would never do it as well as they did. Or even worse, maybe you do it better than they do, but still, they're up here and you're down here. Talk about rage. Cain is livid. He is a ticking time bomb. And so now God comes down from heaven and he crashes Cain's pity party. And God says, Cain, we got to talk. And he peppers Cain's with question. Why are you so unhappy? Why are you so angry? And here's what God says to Cain. I want you to listen to these words. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. We're going to spend some time on that phrase. Cain Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin crouches. 
And the Hebrew word here for crouch is the word that is used usually with a, with a leopard or a tiger. But think for, you don't have to have a te- leopard or a tiger if you have a cat at home. Or if you've ever had a cat, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You know, cats have this very rich fantasy life. If you have a cat in your house and it sees a bug across the living room, what does your cat do? It freezes, right? And then it drops to a crouch. And your cat goes like this, you know, going after this bug like that. What does an animal do when it goes into a crouch? It tries to appear smaller than it really is. It, it wants you to underestimate it. In the Super Bowl later today, you're going to see when the game is going on, there are going to be defensive backs who are going to go into a crouch and they are going to try to make themselves look small and they are going to hang out in the weeds in hopes that the quarterback throws a nice lazy pass and they are then going to pounce and they will go all the way if they can in a uh, pick six if they can. But God says sin crouches. Sin doesn't want you to know it's in your life. It wants you to underestimate it in your life and that's often what we do do you have a pet sin that and that you do so often that you just automatically forgive yourself for that sin Uh, could it be that you have certain kinds of people you just disdain could it be that sometimes you just sort of play creative with the numbers in your business Do you sometimes allow yourself a sexual dalliance from time to time? What God is saying to Cain is, you don't have that kind of wiggle room in your life, Cain. Cain, what you've got here is you have got this grudge that you are nursing against your brother and you are ripping him up one side and down the other and that's not little, that's a big sin in a crouch. And, and it's like a predator that is crunching along the floor and it's studying your motions and it's waiting for the moment when it's going to pounce. It will overcome you. Back in 1932, there was a famous medical experiment that took place in Tuskegee, Alabama. And there were doctors and there were researchers who were doing research on the dreaded disease of syphilis. And they wanted to see how the effect of syphilis would be on a person over the course of their lifetime. And so they recruited 400 infected uh, African-American men in the rural areas around Tuskegee to be part of this experiment. And they offered the men free uh, lunches and free trips to town and free medical care, but did not offer them a cure for for the syphilis because they did not have a cure in 1932. But then later in the 1940s, there was discovered a miracle cure for syphilis, of course, and that was penicillin. But the researchers and the doctors who were conducting the experiment did not give the penicillin to those men in that experiment. And meanwhile, those men continued to suffer and to die. In fact, those researchers, they intervened with the local draft boards to keep them from drafting these men because if they were drafted into the military, they would have been given the penicillin and been cured, but the researchers blocked that. And it continued to be the way, and the men continued to die all the way until 1972 when one of the researchers leaked it to the New York Times. And you look at that and you say, weren't these men, or these, these researchers, uh, men or women, they, weren't they evil? Well, the effect of what they did was evil. 
But my guess is that some of them were just wonderful uh, church-going people, may have taught Sunday school, but see, their sin was crouching. It was hiding behind the casual racism of that time. And they did not see the precious humanity of those men whose lives they ruined. Sin crouches. Historian Paul Johnson says among Hitler's final words were, in the end, you regret having been so kind. See, even Hitler was blind to his own sin. And so what do we do about that? I'm going to say two things that this says to us. First of all, you and I must have zero tolerance for the sin in our life. We must find it and we must nip it in the bud. Jesus said a shocking thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, he doesn't mean that literally. He means, he means deal ruthlessly with a sin in your life. One of the most iconic scenes in all of television history uh, was the old opening to the television show, Wide World of Sports. Remember that tagline? The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And for the agony of defeat... They would show this downhill skier who would take this spectacular tumble and slam into a lodge and seem to break every bone in his body. In fact, I'm going to show you that for a moment. You think football's rough. Watch this. A lot of speed in that track. Look out! Look at him go! Oh! Oh, baby. What a terrible fall. The agony of defeat. Did you know that he did that on purpose? I read an interview one time that said that what he had done is got on a patch of ice and he looked up and he could see that he was going to get launched into some trees that would probably kill him. And so he figured he had to pay a little now or pay a whole lot later. And so to save his life, he took that spectacular tumble. See, that's kind of what Jesus is saying about sin. He says, take, deal with your sin in your life, even right now if it hurts as bad as cutting your hand off or taking your eye out. Because it's worth it to pay that price now rather than get launched into the oblivion that may be waiting for you someday in the future. And so what he says is nip it in the bud. Do whatever it takes to get rid of your sin. And then second, in order to do that, you've got to get in touch with a source. Psychologists tell us that anger is a secondary emotion. That anger is kind of like the warning light on the dashboard of life that when it starts flashing, it's time to pull over to the side of the road and look under the hood and see what's really going on. And usually beneath our anger is a feeling of hurt. Cain is feeling deep hurt and betrayal. Sometimes we Christians grow up in homes where they're Christian homes where the one unacceptable emotion is anger. And so we're told, swallow your anger like a good little Christian. The only problem with that is suppressed anger becomes like trying to hold a beach ball under the water indefinitely and it's going to pop up at some inopportune times and places. Or if you try to hold it down too much, eventually it turns into leaky barrels of hazardous waste that poisons you and your relationships. And so find that source. One of those helpful comments I've ever heard comes from N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar. He says, whenever you find yourself tempted to cave into a sin, get in touch with your hurt. He says, ask yourself, where in my past have I been wounded in a way that makes me vulnerable to that sin? And then he says, ask Jesus to come and heal you. 
and to be your guide and your friend, and he will carry you through. I'm sharing a lot of personal things. I'd like to share a personal reflection about my father. My boyhood was punctuated by spectacular fits of anger by my dad. Uh, and I will hasten to add, never directed toward uh, any of us kids or my mom. But my dad would be in the garage and he would be working with a, a tool, say like a screwdriver, and if it would break, all of us kids would go running as fast as we could because we knew what was going to come next. And that is every tool in his toolbox were going to get get flung down the driveway and it was going to be raining craftsman tools from the sky for the next five minutes and and I remember as a boy asking mom why is daddy so angry and my mom would tell us this she said well your father lost his mother at the age of seven she died of pneumonia and your father lived on a farm of 2,000 acres in a remote part of Montana with his father and with his brother and then she said this, and always got me. She said, your father never learned how to sing. In other words, his life was so devoid of any female, any connection with, with anything soft that he never even learned how to sing uh, as, a, as a boy. And then later in life, he came in second in salutatorian of his high school, but he was passed over by the family, and they sent his younger brother to college instead, and, and the younger brother just partied it all the way. And so the combination of having lost his uh, mother at the age of seven and, and then being passed over for going to college made my dad a seething cauldron of anger. And most of it was directed, directed at God, which is ironic because he married this marvelous Christian woman. But dad was bitter and sarcastic. And one of his, he used to make my mom cry a lot by some of his comments. He said, one of his comments was, well, I don't care whether Jesus got nailed to a cross or run over by a milk truck. And then he'd laugh and... and uh, it was very hurtful and painful. And, and so this is how it was in our, in our family. But then, in his 60s, my father had a heart attack, struggled with depression, and in the midst of all of that, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I will tell you, I have never seen a more amazing transformation in a human being in my life. All of a sudden now, Dad was the one who would get up on Sunday mornings to get my mom out of bed and get her to go to church. Like my dad never did anything halfway, I'll tell you. And, and, and then the only thing I couldn't handle was he was so into his church that he put me on his pastor's sermon mailing list. And I thought, dear Lord, I prayed for my dad, but I didn't want this. I didn't want... A, but what we saw was this amazing transformation of dad's, that tiger in his soul became tame. My dad used to be, when, before he was like almost military with us boys. And now after he'd become a Christian, he would call me on the phone and he'd say, Vic, you know I love you. And, and then he'd just be silent. And I'd say, Dad, I love you too. Vic, you know how much I love you. Yeah, Dad, I love you. Mom said he was making up for lost time. And in their relationship with each other, they became so lovey-dovey in those uh, latter days that when one of them was going to go from the kitchen to the living room, they'd kiss each other goodbye just to walk into the next room. And one of the most amazing gifts was to watch my dad in his last days with cancer to see how he went into the presence of the Lord with such joy. It's like the tiger had turned into this friendly pussycat. And so I want to let you know that our stories of anger don't have to end like the story of Cain. As a matter of fact, 
John Steinbeck, in his great novel, East of Eden, builds it entirely around this verse 7 we've been looking at. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain. It desires to have you, and you must rule over it. Only John Steinbeck translates it, not you must, but he says, thou mayest. In other words, Cain, you can do this. You're a big boy, Cain. You're not a victim, Cain. Yes, evil is bad. Yes, sin is crouching. But you're a human and you're not an animal and you can tame your tiger. Nip it in the bud, Cain. Go back to the source and find that source. And I can heal your hurt. Thou mayest overcome your anger. I invite you to join me in prayer. Lord, we are the children of Cain, and we struggle with feelings of hurt and bitterness. We can see the damage we've done to the people around us, those we love, from our unresolved anger, in our bitterness, in our anger, in our sarcasm. And so this morning, Lord, we lay our souls at the foot of the cross, asking you to heal the hurts that cause us to be angry. Would you bathe us in your grace? Would you let us see our own belovedness in your eyes? And help us to trust in the mystery of your ways, even when they make no sense at all to us, knowing that if we do trust you, in the end it's all going to be well under the sovereignty of your love for us. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.